Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. Inauguration Day is an auspicious day to release a podcast. And while we are certainly not intending to compete with the inauguration, I do think we might complement it. There's much to be hopeful about in this moment, especially as it applies to our work at Jarrah Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign. Last week, when he was still president-elect, Joe Biden outlined his $1.9 trillion plan to combat the virus and spur economic recovery. And he spoke explicitly and at length about childhood hunger in a way that we have not heard for years. We'll also tackle the growing hunger crisis in America. As I speak, and the vice president-elect has spoken to this many times, one in seven households in America, more than one in five black and Latino households in America, report they don't have enough food to eat. This includes 30 million adults and as many as 12 million children. It's wrong. It's tragic. It's unnecessary. It's unacceptable. That was Joe Biden as president-elect. That priority, which he discussed now that he's president, becomes a priority for our nation. Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign will play an important role in implementing it. And there's another priority in which we've already played such a role. On Thursday, the day after President Biden is sworn in, he will announce actions to help America's schools reopen safely. America's economy can't recover fully until kids are back at school and parents are back at work. And school closures have had a disproportionate impact on children of color. For kids to be back in class, school food service needs to be able to feed them in a new, safe, and special way that the pandemic demands. Through grants totaling nearly $65 million over the last few months of 2020, we equipped thousands of schools across this country to do just that. From Bitterford, Maine to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, from Hope County, North Carolina to Twin Rivers, California, and almost everywhere in between, schools will be opening more smoothly thanks to the unified effort on our part that encompassed fundraising, grant making, advocacy, program, and communications. Many important activities came to a halt during the pandemic. Our contribution to reopening America's schools did not. At Share Our Strength and at the No Kid Hungry campaign, we spent the last months of the Trump administration laying the foundation for one of the Biden administration's highest priorities, getting our schools back open. Inaugural speeches make promises. We've already helped keep one. So we're seeing this important shift with regard to government and policies that drive change, the kind of shift that you would expect with this change in administration. But today's podcast is about an important shift in the private sector as well, especially when it comes to those in the culinary community, our chefs and restaurateurs who've been at the forefront of the fight against hunger. The shift is that they're moving beyond charity, the kind of fundraising events that you typically associate with chefs and restaurateurs. They're moving beyond that to become advocates of race equity and social justice, to get to the root causes of why kids and families are hungry in the first place. We've spoken to many such chefs on this podcast over the last few months. They include Amanda Cohen, J.J. Johnson, Paola Velez, Rick Bayless, Chad Hauser, and Kim. And today, we talk again with Kwame Anwachi. Kwame Anwachi is emblematic of this new social justice activist. And as such, we wanted to re-release this recent conversation with him. Kwame talks about how the pandemic caused him to rethink the role of restaurants in the community and to rethink the way he engages. It's one of our most important conversations, and I appreciate you listening.
Today, we are really lucky to have Kwame Anwachi, who's been on Ad Passion and Stir before. He's a 2019 James Beard Award winner and the author of an amazing book called Notes from a Young Black Chef. Kwame, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a while. Tell us where where you are and how you're doing. Right now, I am in Boston, Mass. Uh, I am helping my mother-in-law move out of her apartment. And yeah, I've got my niece with me as well. She's visiting from New Orleans. Well, I... I I can't even picture DC without you. So I'm sure you're going to be back there before too long. How, uh, and you've stayed healthy, your family's healthy, everybody's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm healthy for the most part. I'm healthy. You know, my family, uh, you know, my grandfather's not doing too well, but you know, no one was affected directly by the coronavirus, um, which I'm, I'm very grateful for. Well, that's good to hear. Um, you know what I wanted to start with the last time we were together, uh, you had very generously agreed to do a conversation with Jose Andreas in a No Kid Hungry Summit that we were holding, uh, the Chair of Strength was holding in Washington, D.C. And Jose uh, kind of started the conversation. And now now it's, it's so interesting in the moment that we're living in now. And he said, uh, he said he had a question about the title of, of your, your book, Notes from a Young Black Chef. He said, why did, why did you have to s- state that it was you were a black chef? Why would just not Notes from a Young Chef? And of course, now we're in a moment where everybody has such heightened awareness to the really significant issues and obstacles that, uh, that black men and women, professionals, chefs uh, face. Um, but I, I, I don't, do you, re, do you recall that conversation? Yeah, I do. I do. And, and I mean, you were very eloquent exp, explaining why you chose that title, but I thought that would be a good place for us to start. Maybe just to talk a little bit about the book, why you wrote it, why you titled it that way. Yeah. Well, you know, um, the book is, is about my life story. Um, and it talks about how I, got to where I am today and all of the uh, success and failure in between, you know, the systematic uh, racism, you know, microaggressions, macroaggressions that, that come with that. Um, and, you know, what it really takes to achieve something um, and, and the mental dexterity it takes to like push through when your skin is darker than, than most. Uh, the title of the book really, it just encompasses what people think of me when I walk into a room. They think, oh, there goes a black chef before they think of, oh, there's a chef. The same thing that women have to go through is a female chef instead of, oh, it's just a chef. You know, um, not many times they're like, oh, that's a white chef over there. It's just, that's a chef. So I needed to to be the one to to say it before anybody else did and to tell that story. So other young black professionals can identify with that. And if you remove the word chef from it, that story, those narratives still remain true. Um, You can put young black photographer, young black nurse. And uh, when you're around a lot of people that don't look like you, and sometimes or more times than none, they have some sort of preconceived notion of how you should act, how you should talk, um, or why are you here? 
it, it makes it harder for you to get to the top. And um, and I wanted to, to tell that story in totality. So that's a, that's a long answer. Well, no, I mean, it's an important answer because we're all, you know, we, we've all been talking about Black Lives Matter. Uh, and what you're saying is uh, professionally and personally being black matters. You, you can't be just a young chef. You're, you're going to be a young black chef when you walk into a room. Mm-hmm. And it was like an F you to everybody, you know, that has uh, looked over me or looked past me. It's like, here I am. Here's my notes from a young black chef. Well, uh, since the book, you've written more about the obstacle that black chefs have to overcome. Uh, you had a, what I thought was a very powerful piece in the Washington Post uh, in early June where you told the story of several chefs of color. Um, and you talked about uh, one of the things you said was, I know, I'll just read it. I know firsthand how hard it is for a person of color in this industry. There have been fleeting moments of defeat, wavering emotions of dissolution, but I keep running back to it time and time again. In March, I laid off all 70 of my employees at Fifth and Kin, the hardest thing I've ever had to do. But with the roller coaster of emotions and uncertainty that each day brings, the thought that resonates the most is as clear as day. We will prevail. We will survive. We will come back more unified than ever. So you were talking uh, not just about, of course, being a black chef, but about being a black chef in the time of this pandemic. How did you deal with the pandemic? What was your response to it in the early days? How has it evolved? What's happening with Kith and Kin? Um, you know, the pandemic is all around tough. Um, you know, first, obviously, with closing the business, but also closing of the world. Like, we're, we are all in this together. Um, all businesses closed in all different markets and, and departments. And um, I think for me, what was really tough about it was mourning, you know, my past life of not being able to go out and travel and see my family and see my friends and, or cook for people. Yeah, I mean, it's just something that I really missed. So some days were tough um, uh, mentally to get through. Some days were easier and I had to kind of let these emotions pass through me and also start to be comfortable with the unknown. I was going to ask you, what were some of your kind of survival strategies? Um, and I think and I know you had to just read this passage. You had to face the the uh, very painful decision to furlough or lay off your staff. Um, so what, what did you do to take care of yourself? Uh, worked out, um, you know, tried to take it easy when, when I when it first shut down, I was, I hit the ground running. I, I think you probably saw me everywhere. I was on TV, CNN, you know, uh, writing articles, you know, doing recipes on Instagram and ever, and I never gave myself time to really, um, digest, you know, the gravity of what has happened. You know, we lost a lot of souls as well in, in this world and in America. That's, that's big. Yeah. I think everybody knows someone that has, either contracted it or perished from it. So, um, so I needed to take some, a, a step back and, you know, not do any press or not go on social media. I think collectively I've probably done three weeks of, you know, being dark on social media. It, it's important to kind of hit that reset button and, and take care of yourself. Honestly, for me, I, I, I don't know, you know, what the future of Kitten can hold because having a restaurant, in a community, you, you kind of have a responsibility to, to that community. You know, you're serving something. Yes, food is an art form, but also food is a, 
is nourishment. It's how we survive. It's how we grow, you know, and I think we have an obligation to the community to give access to people that don't, that can't afford, you know, these really fancy Michelin starred meals um, that just need food. And I was inspired over the pandemic, you know, when I went back to my neighborhood in the South Bronx where I grew up and I cooked for the, the, the people in the neighborhood and it was the most gratifying feeling I've had in a long time. You know, they weren't talking about this needed a little bit more salt or, you know, the nuances of the curry or X, Y, Z or three stars. So Kwame, what did that look like? How many days did you do that? Where did you, where did you do it from? Uh, how many folks showed up? I did it for three weeks in the South Bronx, this restaurant wow. Mott Haven Bar and Grill. I don't know. We did like 400, 500 people a day or something like that. Yeah, it was it makes me rethink of the structure of a restaurant, you know, and soon I'll be doing my own restaurant and hopefully I can instill those uh, values into the um, into the DNA of the restaurant from the beginning. And the folks who were showing up in the South Bronx were uh, these uh, the folks that we've been seeing on TV and in other reports who, because of unemployment, because of COVID, had nowhere else to turn for just their basic necessities of food? Yeah, exactly. So they were, we're feeding first responders, you know, first and foremost, talking like fire department, uh, NYPD, nurses. And then we were feeding the community college students that were out of a job that, you know, they can't get a job right now and they're out of school. So, um, so yeah, th- those are the people primarily. And then we opened it up to anyone in the community that just wanted a hot meal. I wonder how this is changing uh, chefs as a community. I had a conversation that this this conversation is reminding me of with Daniel Hume a few weeks ago, who who said as a result of what's going on, uh, he's decided that he doesn't really just want to cook for the 1%. He wants to cook for the other 99%. Uh, something very similar to what you just said, you know, not, not the meals that only a very, very few people can afford. but um, appreciating food as the vital sustenance that it is, which of course at Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign is the way we always think about it. Um, and we work with so many restaurateurs, but it it sounds like a lot of folks are, are really going to be personally transformed people in the industry. Is that, is that a fair statement? I think so. I would hope so. I would hope we don't just go back to the same normal that we create a new normal, um, that really makes sure that we're taking care of our staff and our community as well as, you know, the bottom line. And I think there are ways to do that. But I think the general public needs to understand that food costs money, you know, and not to bat their eye at a $20 burger or $25 burger. Um, because we do have aspirations of giving our staff health care and making sure that hopefully they have a 401k. And if we're charging $8 for a burger or, you know, a Friday night fish special, um, it's, it's harder to do that. We've seen because of COVID the vulnerability that the restaurant industry has. It's vulnerable because it's also built upon a broken system of slavery. You know, that's where tipping came from. You know, restaurants were profitable because they didn't have to pay their cooks because they were usually black. We need to we need to change that narrative and charge what the food is worth. I, I think that's the only way. So we need um, understanding on both sides, you know, of, of the past and, and the restaurant. And Kwame, I should know this, but I don't. Is uh, that that was the genesis of tipping? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they weren't wow. paid. So, you know, it was like, here's a quarter, flick a quarter at them. Um, and, you know, it, it then graduated into what it is today. And that's why you see a lot of tipped employees. They, they are, by law, able to 
own be below minimum wage and that comes from them generally being black people in the beginning and with everything that's going on now in terms of uh black lives matter the renewed activism uh what's your confidence level that this is more than a moment that will pass but that's something that could really you know it's an opportunity that uh, a lot of us can seize to really create lasting change i know you've got a you've got a sense of history and a sense of activism what's your confidence level yeah i mean i've um, i'm cautiously optimistic for sure um but i think with with thought comes change you know if you're thinking about something i think i, I spoke about this last time when i was on here that um i'm, I'm not saying that you know my book is going to change someone overnight but it will get people to think about the next time they do something or the way that they're acting within their own microcosm so I think it's important um, to keep this momentum going, uh, you know, keep the protests going, keep talking about it, and hopefully that it will become more inclusive over time. Tell me a little bit about, for you, inside of you, where this impulse comes to write, to give voice to these social issues. Um, a book's not an easy thing to write, and then you banged out this really important br- piece in the in the Washington Post about the obstacles facing black chefs you that that, I, that was so timely and, and, but tell me a little bit is there a uh, there there must be this kind of just like this flame inside of you that is constantly saying I've got to speak out yeah I mean I try to speak my mind and I and I, and I just try to be truthful and um, speak from experience more importantly and that's just who I've been who I've always been um and I, I think it's important, you know, because there's a lot of people that share similar stories. And when they hear someone being vocal about it, it lets them know that they're not crazy and they're not alone. Who else in the uh, in the chef and the culinary community uh, has uh, given voice that you admire on these issues? Who are who are the allies in this movement? Definitely Marcus Samuelson, um, Eduardo Jordan, J.J. Johnson. Michael Twitty. You know, one of the other things that you wrote in the uh, in the Washington Post piece about obstacles facing uh, chefs, black chefs, and I had not thought about uh, this, but it's a different kind of uh, struggle. You wrote that um, I went through some struggle in trying to find my path to the cuisine of my heritage. Investors and owners have constantly pushed me to do what they think is right instead of what was authentic to me. So is, I guess for a new chef, that's something you feel, right? This tension between balancing what investors uh, expect from you and what's in your DNA in terms of what you want to cook. How, how did you deal with that? I mean, it had to come through experience. You know, I, I think anybody, whether they're black, white, you know, brown or whatever color, you get that first opportunity to run your own place or, you know, just to run a place and have, you know, creative freedom that creative freedom still comes at a cost and that excitement can stifle that and not wanting to lose the opportunity, especially for the first time. So, you know, for me, finding my voice was also, it came through experience of knowing that I needed to do what was authentic to me in order to be successful. And it's okay to say no, because if you compromise, you may not be as successful as you can be anyway. So why don't you just like take it for what it is? Yeah, my my feeling, and I see this with creative artists in every profession, is 
um, unless you're really true to what you need to say or do, it just, it diminishes your power. It just, it dilutes it. You're also involved in policy efforts through the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Tell us a little bit about what that is and what kind of things that you're advocating for to help the restaurant industry in the U.S. get back on its feet. Uh, well, we're advocating for a lot. You know, we pushed to get the eight weeks uh, spending period for the PPP loan to 24 weeks, which is a huge win. We also are pushing for a restaurant stabilization fund because the restaurant industry is so fickle and we have been gutted by COVID. Um, we're in dire need of, of some sort of stabilization fund moving forward because the restaurants aren't operating at full capacity and won't be until. I, I think until we have a vaccine, really, there's not people, people aren't comfortable going out. And then we're also pushing for a more equitable industry. We just started a, a subcommittee subcommittee of, of for, for equity and uh, inclusion, you know, to, to really tackle the lack of diversity within the fine dining or, you know, modern dining industry. So yeah, um, we got a lot to work on. You know, I think there's a lot more that we could do. We're a young organization, a young coalition. And the the longer we are around, the more experience we'll have and the more that we can tackle. But you think a vaccine is, and I agree with you, a vaccine is going to be key to getting people back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's major key. Major key. I heard... Uh, you know, there's been so much attention to the notion of opening up at 25% or 50% or what have you. And I've heard many restaurateurs say that um, they have, you know, not been profitable or only barely profitable at 80 or 90%, you know, so it's it's hard to imagine how it works without a full restaurant. And I'm I'm guessing that's the case for you as well. Yeah, it doesn't work. There's no profit at all, you know, and then you know, on top of that, you can't bring back your staff as well. Um, so it's a, it's a tough predicament to be in for sure. And I don't know, that's why, you know, for me, it's maybe time to just regroup and, and attack this again in a, in a different light. For those of us who are passionate about restaurants, love them, work with them, as Share Our Strength uh, does, uh, care about them becoming more diverse and inclusive. Uh, if, if you're not a chef or a restaurateur, but, but a fan, how can those of us make a difference? How can we help? Is the Independent Restaurant Coalition have a website that we can go to or the ways to donate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, go to saverestaurants.com. Um, and there are pl there's plenty of literature there to, to point you in the right direction to help or give back. And that can be monetary or not. You know, it can be calling your local representative to ask them to you know, help support the Restaurant Stabilization Fund. Or it can be a donation to help us, you know, lobby and, and uh, continue doing what we're doing. But you can also just go out and support your restaurants and tip well and um, spread the word, you know, uh, make a takeout night. So like, and also make sure that you're diversifying where your dollars are going. It's very, very important. They're not just going to maybe the same place, but you're trying out different restaurants and neighborhoods that are maybe outside of your zip code. In terms of... Um those are great suggestions in terms of the probably the tougher issue of how to build more diversity into the industry itself. Are, are there 
or there, is there a list of things that you're working on in that regard? I'm guessing, and having read a little bit more about what you've talked about, I'm guessing that a lot of it has to do with investing in uh, young talent and giving them an opportunity, uh, talent that maybe gets overlooked by traditional investors. But what kind of things can we be supporting so that we do have more diversity. The power is in a dollar. So where you spend your money is where things go. Where you spend your money is where publications go, what they write about. So diversify where you're spending your dollars, whether it's... The power is in the dollar. Yeah, it's in the dollar. So like, I, I don't really care if, if it's children's um, uh, literature. You need to diversify that, you know, in, in between, you know, Berenstein Bears and... I don't know what kids read, but think Dr. Seuss, you know, maybe there should be some black narratives in there as well. And no, no matter what nationality your kids are, because I guarantee you that, you know, I grew up with some white narratives in my library co collection because there's just more of that. So diversifying that so your children can grow up um, seeking out these things because it's more familiar to them as far as and as opposed to as exotic. And that's how we can really make sure that things continue to diversify and make this just the, the norm. And it starts with the youth, really. I love that advice, Kwame, because it's something that each and every one of us can be conscious of, something that we can do, something that we can get our families uh, involved in and, and need to. Um, I'm going to wrap up here by reading one more uh, passage because it's such a hopeful and optimistic one uh, from your uh, Washington Post piece of of June 8th, where you write that the current state of affairs is nothing new. We're just able to share it more easily through our devices. Change, change comes with constant, persistent pressure. Change comes with self-exploration and empathy. Change is proactive and not reactive. Change is action. It is going to take investing in our Black youth mentally, spiritually, and physically. It doesn't come with a tweet, a post, or even an article for that matter. If we truly plant the seeds of understanding, inclusion, compassion, and equity today, we will certainly have a better future tomorrow. Kwame, I can't thank you enough, not only for being with us on Add Passion and Stir, but for what you do, for what you say, for putting that hopeful frame around where we are in this moment. I can tell from talking to you that um, you've got a lot going on in the back of your mind about what your future is going to look like, what the future of the industry is going to look like. I want to just kind of keep following you because I feel like you represent the future and um, hopefully we can all find ways to be supportive. I appreciate that. Thank you always for your support. I hope you're well, and your wife and your family, and I look forward to seeing you in person one day. I can't wait forward to seeing you at whatever restaurant you're at, but especially your own restaurant as soon as you have it. Kwame Onwachi, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, just a reminder, to folks that notes from a young black chef is uh, one of the best things you can read in this moment or any other moment. Thanks so much for joining us on Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. I hope you'll go back and look at our archive uh, of uh, episodes at addpassionandstir.com. You can rate us, rank us, subscribe, and share with friends on behalf of the whole team at Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign. Thanks for listening.